0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: If you live in New York or London, the chances are you're pretty used to the seasons. And if you live and breathe crypto, well, you've also gotten pretty used to changing weather.
0: There's crypto summer and crypto winter.
1: Since the creation of Bitcoin in 2009, there have been two major crypto winters – Moments when the entire crypto ecosystem gets wiped out. And since January of this year, temperatures in the crypto world have plummeted. Well, it may be summer in the real world, but
2: online, it's a crypto winter.
1: The value of a single Bitcoin has fallen 70% from its 2021 peak and is hovering around $20,000. But with
3: Bitcoin blown to bits is now the time to buy the dip. Here with me now in studio. For some crypto
1: bulls, this seems like a good thing.
0: Crypto winter is actually where so often many of the most interesting companies get built.
1: And for the bears, it is proof that all of the hype was really just hype.
4: This is a big sea change. We're going to see now that, you know, these old systems that people were playing with, these kind of Ponzi economics, a lot of DeFi that never really generated any value, that was very self-referential it's going
1: away. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm
5: Samea Keynes.
1: And I'm Mike Bird. And in this week's episode, could the crypto winter turn into a permafrost?
5: We'll ask what's led to the current downturn.
3: Historically, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies haven't been correlated very highly with equities. But what we saw starting in about December was an extremely high
1: correlation.
6: And we'll look at what weaknesses have been exposed. We're also discovering a number of uh, pretty worrying interdependencies within the DeFi ecosystem.
1: We will debate if decentralized finance will ever be fit for mainstream use.
7: So decentralized finance, I think, does hold a lot of potential. But we haven't seen that potential yet. Or whether
1: the hype cycle of 2021 was crypto's last. Hi, Mike and Sumeya. Hi, Alice.
8: Hey, Alice. Thanks for taking the lead
1: again on this episode. Yes, no, holiday goes unpunished with the two of you. Well,
5: you know, I couldn't lead given I already shared my crypto investment insights on a previous episode,
8: which was picking a random coin and hoping for the best, right? That
5: is that is the one. Yeah, it doesn't work, turns out.
8: And Alice, you are or maybe were kind of the economist in the house decentralized finance bull
1: I mean, I was a nuanced ball, but I guess so. And listeners or, or readers of The Economist might remember that last year in October, uh, close to the peak in crypto, we auctioned off a non-fungible token or NFT of the magazine's cover art for a story I wrote looking at the weird world of DeFi. I am sitting in Chicago O'Hare Airport on a layover between two flights that I rearranged so that I could be here. Present to push this button, and then the auction will be live. The auction was a wild ride, and the NFT eventually sold for ninety nine point nine ether, which was worth around four hundred twenty thousand dollars at the time the auction closed. But today is only worth about one hundred twenty thousand.
8: So this episode is just to be a sort of thirty minute struggle session, right? With you apologising for for all of your misdeeds in the DeFi world.
1: I mean, that's a bit harsh. I should clarify that we uh, converted our ether to dollars very quickly, which was always our plan. And we gave all of the money to our educational foundation. If if that is a misdeed, take me away. But uh, (laughs) you will recall (laughs) that last week we were speaking about who is left swimming naked when the tides go out.
5: And in this case, the tide going out is markets crashing.
1: Right. And we also spoke about how the Fed raising rates might cause a housing bubble to pop. Well, the crypto bubble has already popped. Uh, Valuations have plunged. We spoke a bit about the Terra and Luna collapse a few weeks ago when we were talking about the bear market in shares. But there is still a lot going on in the crypto space. And in some ways, it's kind of confusing because these cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ether, all the others, they were almost created as inflation hedges. So the fact that they are selling off so aggressively now as rates are rising is worth probing a bit more deeply.
5: And as someone suffering hilariously bad returns on a coin I can't remember the name of, I am ready to probe.
1: Well, I won't be issuing any investment advice. It's certainly not any better than a pick a random coin and hope. But to understand what's happening now with this current crypto winter, it's actually pretty helpful to go back to the last one in 2017.
8: OK, so we're heading back into a time before the pandemic, before runaway inflation, before the war in Ukraine. It sort of feels like that shouldn't be just five years ago.
1: Yep. Yep we've been busy but anyway here we go. Bitcoin as you may already know was invented in 2009 by the still to this day anonymous Satoshi Nakamoto. Its cousin Ethereum was invented in 2014 when Vitalik Buterin a Canadian Russian who was just a teenager at the time published its white paper and presented it at a conference in Miami.
0: So back when Bitcoin was originally created in 2009 Satoshi was really testing two things at once. So the first part is there is this idea of Bitcoin, the decentralized currency.
1: Vitalik designed Ethereum to be like a more advanced version of
0: Bitcoin. At one particular task. Bitcoin is very good for transferring money, but it was not designed as a foundational layer for any kind of protocols to be built on top. So Ethereum is therefore its own blockchain. Um so Ethereum, uh, Bitcoin's blockchain
1: Bitcoin Bitcoin is essentially a database. It stores information about which wallets own which bitcoins and transfers between wallets. Its decentralized network verifies which transactions have taken place. Ethereum's blockchain stores lines of code
0: of and here is the fundamental part, it has its own built-in programming language. So the idea there is that if you look at That made it possible for developers to
1: write so-called LVP. smart contracts and for ethereum's decentralized network to verify that those lines of code had been executed smart contracts also meant that users could issue new cryptocurrencies on the ethereum network something that wasn't possible on the bitcoin blockchain
0: so the idea here is that let's not have one currency let's let's have thousands of currencies and we can have this form of this sort of economic democracy through a cur- currency system so Ethereum is a platform that makes, that makes it a thousand times easier to bootstrap your own decentralized currency because you can just make it as a contract.
1: Bitenech outlined all the other potential uses of Ethereum and received a standing
0: ovation. Here are some other interesting applications. Savings wallets, crop insurance, peer-to-peer gambling, decentralized exchange, data storage, decentralized Dropbox, mesh networking, reputation systems, and perhaps maybe even Skynet.
1: And in 2015, the network went live. Two years later, a boom in initial coin offerings was underway. These ICOs were when people sold tokens or currencies issued mostly on the Ethereum blockchain to investors. It will be an incredible round of funding, uh, creating something never been seen before in the ICO world. More than 2,000 unique tokens were sold raising more than 10 billion dollars
5: IPOs still struggling but those ICOs initial
8: coin offerings are super hot right now there's a the price of bitcoin with all the
1: excitement and adoption of more and more crypto tokens pushed the value of bitcoin up The digital
0: currency bitcoin has hit an all-time high soaring above $1700 for the first time ever
2: Bitcoin, the controversial cryptocurrency, soared to an all-time high today of
8: $5,000. dollars That's the fresh record high for one Bitcoin reached on Friday.
2: It
1: eventually hit an all-time high of almost $20,000, and Ethereum climbed above 1000 But in 2018, there was a bust. Many of the ICOs were scams, and regulators got involved. China made ICOs illegal, and in America, the Securities and Exchange Commission cracked down.
3: We're already seeing a slowdown in ICO funding. South Korea and China have banned ICOs. And here in the US, this controversial way of fundraising has become the subject of intense scrutiny from lawmakers. Many
1: tokens went to zero. Bitcoin fell back to around $3,000, and Ethereum dropped to around 150. And the crypto winter didn't really thaw until late 2020. That's when enthusiasm for DeFi and NFTs kicked off another hype cycle.
5: OK, so that's what prompted the last crypto winter. What does that tell us about what is happening now?
1: Well, there are certainly a lot of similarities. So in 2017, there was that huge amount of hype about blockchains and crypto and all of these new cryptocurrencies and tokens being issued and that whole frenzy leading to, you know, real use cases for the technology. In 2021, there was a huge amount of hype about NFTs and DeFi and both winters have washed out the flimsiest stuff first. There are some similarities to the macro backdrops too. In 2018, the S&P fell 6% the Fed was raising rates, inflation was climbing. The difference this time around is just how acute the inflation problem is. In 2018, inflation was a tiny bit like 0.4 percentage points above the Fed's target range. Now we're in the midst of the worst inflation crisis in 40 years. So that crypto is falling sharply against this backdrop has come as something of a shock to many holders. We spoke to a few people for this episode. One of them was Clara Medali, the research director at Kaiko, which is a cryptocurrency market data provider.
3: So, I think most people always thought that Bitcoin was like the safe haven against inflation. That's been one of its like core, I guess, value propositions for years, and we're really seeing the unraveling of that narrative over the past few months. It's clear that Bitcoin isn't necessarily a store of value in times of high inflation and like it's really just how investors are acting. It, investors don't consider it as immune to the effects of what's going on at the macro level, and they're not really treating it like gold right now.
1: And the problem with Bitcoin as an inflation hedge is that actually what investors really want during times of high inflation are robust cash flows. They essentially want to know that the assets that they're holding are generating enough cash that their investments won't depreciate in real terms. The upshot is the stuff that has really suffered are things like unprofitable tech companies and crypto.
5: Right. And and what about what we were discussing last time? So who's swimming naked? What has led to this downturn? Was it the macro environment? Was the Terra stablecoin and Luna token collapse just the first sign of trouble?
1: I think that the way to think about it is probably that the macro environment kicked everything off, but that the slide in crypto valuations have exposed all kinds of underlying problems that have exacerbated it. So the May breakdown of Luna happened in part because it was backed by Bitcoin, which was tumbling. And this month, another part of the crypto ecosystem came under stress again, a lender called Celsius based in Canada. Here's Clara.
3: So Celsius is a centralized lending service. Essentially, it operates very much like a traditional bank where users can deposit their cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum and earn yields. The issue is that Celsius was offering very high yields to their um, to their customers. And you know that that's only possible when on the back end Celsius is reinvesting their customers funds into even riskier protocols, which we now know was exactly the case. Specifically, these high risk DeFi protocols, which offered in some cases, up to 18 to 20% yield. So they were doing stuff that traditional banks are not allowed to do, very poor risk management. And when you had just one issue happen with some of these more high-risk DeFi protocols, it created this contagion event where they eventually had to halt withdrawals and so users could no longer withdraw their currencies.
1: And just to break down some of her jargon here, A protocol is what crypto people normally call any kind of financial intermediary or platform. And what's important about both the collapse of the Lunar Terra system and the failure of Celsius is that when things soured for crypto, neither were able to keep the sort of fundamental promise that they made to their depositors or their investors. Terra was supposed to be pegged to the dollar. Celsius described the cryptocurrencies that investors deposited as deposits, i.e. money that they could always get back. And what's really different about the crypto crash of 2021 is that it's not just Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other random cryptocurrencies, things you can think of as kind of like assets getting wiped out. There's been a whole crypto financial system that has been built in the interim, and financial systems are at their core just promises, promises to return deposits, promises to repay loans. The crypto financial system now is breaking those promises.
5: Okay, so the big difference is that This time, there aren't just assets, there's a whole financial system. And like the traditional financial system, there can be contagion and interlinkages and and all kinds of nasty knock-on
1: effects. Precisely. And this is something that our colleague Mathieu Favas, who wrote a piece in the paper last week about crypto contagion, highlighted. The problem with this crypto financial system is that it has all of the nasty interlinkages and contagion like the traditional system but it's missing a couple of crucial parts that can help stop chaos from spiralling, notably an anchor for valuations.
6: In the mainstream finance world, a lot of assets are valued on the cash flows they generate. You know, if it's a bonds, you, you receive a coupon. If it's a company, you receive dividends. You typically value the asset based on the cash flow you hope you will receive in the future. In the case of, you know, crypto assets, that's not the case. I mean, the underlying asset, you know, the crypto coin doesn't generate any cash flow. So that makes it hard to value in itself. And that's the simplest asset in that universe. But then over the last few years in the DeFi world, they've built products on top of these crypto coins, uh, which are you know, from derivatives to this sort of yield generating product created by crypto banks or so-called crypto banks, which means you have you know, several degrees of complexity piled on top of each other. It becomes really hard to therefore put a price on any crypto asset Which means, you know, when the market is very bullish, then, you know, you think everything is undervalued. But when the market uh, turns, then suddenly you start to think that perhaps everything is overvalued massively. And there's a crisis of confidence that strikes in very fast.
1: In addition, when you get those kinds of spirals in traditional finance, often there is a central bank who can come in and bail things out. But there isn't one in crypto.
6: So when you have a sort of liquidity crisis like we've had in recent weeks, nobody can step in to intervene which is a big problem because then you don't have any circuit breaker and the contagion effect can just you know, spin on and spin on and, and continue. But one thing that's also happening, which is very interesting, is you're starting to see some of the private players in the crypto ecosystem that seem to be wanting to play that role. The biggest one is probably FTX, one of the main crypto exchanges. And so you know, in the absence of public central authority that can save the system, It's interesting to see that perhaps some private players think that they need to play that role.
1: FTX have provided such big loans that some people are referring to Sam Bankman Fried, the founder of FTX, as the Fed.
5: Is there anything else that's different about this crypto winter?
1: Well, crypto is just much, much bigger now. So the fallout from this is hurting institutional investors, it's hurting retail investors, obviously, but it's also hitting workers. In 2017, employment in the crypto sector was just much, much lower. So we've seen a lot of layoffs announced this time around. One of the biggest trading platforms, Coinbase, laid off 18% of its staff, which is over 1,000 people. Uh, And a few other players in the system have been impacted as well. Our producer, Sam Western has spoken to a few.
4: Yes. So I wanted to talk to people who had lost their jobs, but finding people to talk wasn't easy. And that surprised me. So many people had publicly posted on LinkedIn their stories of getting laid off or even having their job offers rescinded uh, from places like Coinbase, Wembit and BlockFi. Eventually, though, I did find someone willing to speak with me.
2: Hello. Hi, Sam. Can you hear me? Great.
4: They didn't want to be named, but they told me at Crypto.com, where they worked, they first started noticing something was wrong by the number of accounts dropping out of their work slack
2: channel so let's say there were about three thousand people in the beginning and every day you just uh, at the end of the day you just see people dropping and dropping with like a uh, hundred or fifty or seventy five and these people were a few hours ago just chatting uh, in all the common chats just working you know uh, they were talking about work related stuff and all of a sudden you see them just disappear And it happened to a few of my friends like two weeks ago. So I just contacted them on LinkedIn afterwards and they told me what happened.
4: One thing I heard from a lot of people, no matter what company or what part of the business they were in, knowing that there are job cuts coming, but not knowing if or when they could happen to you is a really uncomfortable situation to find yourself in.
2: We just kept on working as much as we could. It was hard to concentrate. Meanwhile, people were leaving the company every single day. But in our team, uh, everybody was just pretending that nothing was happening. Off Slack, you know, off work, we will talk about it and we will be worried. You know, we will be thinking about what what are we going to do if they uh, lay us off. It doesn't feel good for sure.
4: The sense I get from hearing people's stories is that they just wish the layoffs had been handled better. They understand why they happened, but a lot of it, they said, was unceremonious. And in some cases, people felt quite undignified but that doesn't seem to have put people off something i heard a lot generally people are looking to get back into the crypto space straight away
2: well i would definitely have my doubts and uh if it comes to that i'll definitely have to raise the question before making my decision but i do think that uh, i would be willing to work in crypto again
5: Bad macro conditions then have generated a sell-off in the crypto financial system and now we're seeing the problems that that come along with so much interconnectedness and contagion without an anchor or a central bank to manage things and and on top of the investors in these tokens and platforms losing their money lots of people are losing their jobs it's not sounding great
1: no I mean when you put it like that it, it's pretty tragic. But it is worth pointing out that a lot of the crypto financial system is actually working as intended as well. So there's another big stablecoin, which is backed by crypto, called MakerDAO. Uh, it's managed to maintain its peg just fine. The big decentralized exchanges are seeming to cope with enormous volumes reasonably well. Bitcoin and Ethereum are still above their 2017 highs. So it's bad, but it's not all bad. Off to the break, we are going to speak with Eswar Prasad, an economist at Cornell University, and then we're going to debate if these issues have made it impossible for normal people to ever adopt DeFi. Is the entire system just nothing more than an incorporeal casino? Or will these issues spur the industry, perhaps by some regulatory strong-arming, to adapt so that it can be of real use to normal people? But
8: before we get to all of that, it's our favourite part of the show where we tell you all about the good things in The Economist this week and how you can read them if you're a subscriber.
1: Yes, Mike, I hear you've been very busy.
8: Yes, I think I have four pieces this week, uh, including the newsletter. If you've been a regular listener to the podcast, you may recognise some of the content on Asian financial centres, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai. We've got a lot about that this week.
5: Right, so the week that I write two pieces in print, I feel like the the slacker. Listeners can look out for my piece on childcare costs in the UK and also about the government's decision over steel tariffs.
1: I've been the laziest this week and written nothing for print, so I'm excited, if that's the right word, to read our defence editor, Shashank Joshu's reporting into the long war in Ukraine, what Russia's military tactics are and how much longer it could go on.
8: And we are all basically layabouts uh, in comparison to Shashank, who has obviously been writing pretty much half of the entire paper for for most of this year so far.
5: Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer.
1: And if you're already a subscriber, good for you. You can sign up to our Money Talks newsletter at economist.com slash newsletters.
8: Both of those links are in the notes to this episode.
5: This might be a strange question to ask halfway through this episode, but we've been talking about the crypto winter and we've heard about people who lost money and and lost jobs. And that is obviously sad. But I mean, look, in my crypto WhatsApp group,
8: maybe this can be the sort of winter for your crypto WhatsApp group. Maybe this could be the last time your your crypto WhatsApp group is actually mentioned on the podcast.
5: (laughs) That is fine. And it is also your loss. The point I was going to make is that I only put in as much money as I was willing to lose, right? I mean, I knew this was a gamble. And I guess the question now is, so what if this crypto winter becomes a permafrost? Do do we really mind if those losses persisted? What would be the bigger cost of that?
1: Yeah, so this is something that I've been thinking you know, deeply about as well. I thought one person who might have an interesting perspective on this is Eswal Prasad. He's a professor at Cornell and has written a book on decentralised finance and the future of money. So let's take a step back. What even was the point of cryptocurrencies or of the whole decentralised finance system?
7: The objective of decentralised finance was to get away from having the government or Traditional financial institutions such as commercial banks play a big role in the process of financial intermediation that is connecting savers and borrowers, giving people easy access to products for managing savings, credit risk and so forth. And the idea was that when you had a government involved or a commercial bank or other financial institution involved, they acted as gatekeepers to the financial system and ended up not providing easy access at low cost to a number of people who needed those services. So the theme of decentralized finance, as embodied in Bitcoin, for instance, was to get away from reliance on either central bank money or any government agency, or indeed any traditional financial institution. So the idea was that you would have an architecture whereby You had security in the system because you had a very decentralized architecture in the sense that you wouldn't have a single point of failure because you would have the same public digital ledgers on which financial records would be maintained being maintained on a range of computers around the world. You would also have decentralized consensus. So this notion of taking power away from financial institutions, away from the government And essentially giving it back to the people was the idealized dream of decentralized finance.
1: Okay, and Crypto Winter aside, do you think it succeeded in that goal?
7: In some ways, it is quite remarkable that DeFi works at all. The fact that you can conduct financial transactions essentially using just your digital identities rather than, in some cases, revealing your real identities. And without putting your trust in a third-party intermediary is a remarkable accomplishment. But the problem with many of these aspects of DeFi, uh, as embodied in Bitcoin, for instance, is they don't seem very scalable. So Bitcoin, for instance, does work as a decentralized medium of exchange, but it's not a very efficient one. And then if you start looking at the DeFi universe more broadly, Again, there are new products and services that have come up that do, in fact, succeed in conducting financial intermediation without having to rely on third-party intermediaries. There is a lot of very clever financial engineering that is taking place in this space. But the dream of democratizing finance by giving a large group of people, including households with low incomes or low net worth, easy access to these products, That dream has not quite been realized yet.
1: So I guess if you think through sort of some of the weaknesses in some of the intermediaries that have been created, so I'm thinking here of of things like, you know, when you borrow money from a, a DeFi protocol, you typically deposit risky, unstable coins like Ether or Bitcoin into it, and then you take out stable coins. And what's happened this time around is that as the price of those things fell, you got margin calls, then you got fire sales and liquidations, and it pushed things, made everything even more volatile. With Celsius, you saw depositors having their funds frozen, which is something that, you know, hasn't happened in traditional finance for the best part of 100 years, I guess. And um, when I look at things like that happening, it makes me think that it's hard... But anyone who isn't a really sophisticated financial player, uh, who could basically stand to lose everything they put in, to use DeFi. And that sort of would narrow the scope of it to just being a tool for sort of risky investments or, or speculation. Do you think that's fair? Is that also what you perceive? Or am I overblowing that?
7: My sense is that this is a moment of considerable existential peril for the entire edifice of DeFi and even centralised uh, cryptocurrencies. The problem is that unlike the traditional financial system, you don't have a liquidity backstop that can prevent a free fall in prices. And that I think is the sort of problem that lenders such as Celsius and some of the exchanges as well have begun to face in this very difficult period. So on the flip side, if you think about what sort of people are having to deal with the risks associated with the fall in the prices of cryptocurrencies or investments in uh, any DeFi protocols. Certainly, there are some very wealthy investors who might have put small portions of their investment portfolios in these classes of assets. And these are individuals who can certainly afford to take risk and can even afford to have a small portion of their portfolio essentially lose value without facing any significant financial peril. But the problem is that we do have a number of relatively unsophisticated retail investors who I think may have gotten taken in by the razzle-dazzle of the new technology, not fully understood what kind of risks they were taking on and essentially put a significant portion of their life savings into uh, DeFi products, into cryptocurrency-related assets. And these are the sort of individuals and households least able to withstand such enormous declines in prices of their assets.
1: Okay, if you think sort of a few years in the future, as far out as you feel comfortable predicting, what is it that you think will use DeFi for, if anything? um, And what will it, it look like?
7: Some of the technology bequeathed to us by the cryptocurrency revolution, especially blockchains, I think will end up playing a significant role even in traditional finance. We've already seen groups of major commercial banks using that technology in order to improve interbank payment and settlements without having to rely on a central bank payment system and in a manner that speeds up those transactions makes them less expensive provides much quicker settlement so it is playing a role now the interesting question is how much of this technology is going to be co-opted by traditional financial institutions making them perhaps even stronger and perhaps even concentrating power in even smaller set of them than is the case right now, thereby reducing rather than enhancing competition. But I think the notion of using DeFi to provide at least very basic banking products and services for managing savings, credit and risk in a manner that is easily accessible even to individuals who don't have very high incomes or network, that is certainly an approach that DeFi can be used very effectively. And certainly there will be many corners of the world where financial systems are not working very well, where you have either governments that are authoritarian or dysfunctional, where DeFi might play a role even in the ordinary day-to-day lives of, of citizens in those countries. But overall, I see DeFi not playing a big enough role to supplant traditional finance in the years to come, but it will certainly have a huge impact in terms of changing the way in which traditional finance is done. And that might be the true legacy of Bitcoin and the entire DeFi universe.
1: Thank you so much for joining us there, Ashwell. That was really helpful.
7: It was a pleasure, Alice.
5: It sounds like this might be a valuable technology, but it's not there yet. And and all of this speculative architecture built on top of it really isn't helping.
1: Yeah, so I guess yeah, you know, the, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot with this crash is that there is some really promising stuff embedded in DeFi at the highest possible level, the sort of global cost of providing all financial intermediation is between 1% and 2% of GDP. Uh, There was an IMF paper that came out a few months ago that tried to do an analysis of how much more efficient the DeFi financial system would be versus the traditional one. And it found that it was as third as costly as using, you know, banks in developed countries and a twelfth as costly as using them in emerging market nations. So there are potentially these sort of huge efficiency gains. And a lot of that efficiency comes from the fact that DeFi is so automated. So there's tons of interesting stuff, a lot of it, interesting innovation going on at DeFi. And I think that it, it would be a shame if, you know, this was the end. I also spoke to another person for this episode, a woman called Kim Grauer, who runs the research arm of Chain Analysis. She highlighted another potential sort of strength of DeFi, uh, as well as being efficient, is that even though we're in the midst of this chaotic downturn, Everyone can see what's happening in real time because DeFi is transparent.
3: This is not a new problem that we're encountering now. It's just kind of the same old situation where we're seeing contagion. But the difference is with crypto, we're actually seeing contagion with this new unprecedented level of transparency where we are able to see people's positions, who has lent to where, exactly when were were transfers made to lending institutions. And so it's kind of the same old thing that we've talked about and what we've seen with traditional finance, but with this new level of transparency.
8: I think one of the things about this transparency and immediacy is also the fact that everyone uses Twitter for basically everything, which is perfect for me. You know, you can see people complaining that actual named people aren't, um, aren't, you know, responding to their margin calls and, you know, you see companies saying, oh, we're suspending withdrawals and it's all happening in real time. You know, when it's, when it's Credit Suisse and Archegos, this stuff takes months to come out and it comes out in sort of very dry official reports. I really quite enjoy that this sort of panic all happens in real time on Twitter, um, basically as people are going bust.
5: I personally have been enjoying the crypto memes that have been posted in the Money Talks WhatsApp group, uh, which I believe I'm still allowed to talk about. Um, so thanks for that, Mike. Um, can we talk about regulation now? I mean, surely that's another way to ensure that, that downturns aren't as severe. Is that is that coming?
1: Yes, that's definitely coming, both to the crypto industry and to this podcast. Uh, we are saving that for a second episode, looking at how complicated regulating this space will be. Because there's another sort of similarity we can think about with 2017. You know, I was telling you about these initial coin offerings. Sure, they were silly, and in some ways they deserved a bit of a reckoning. But when the SEC stepped in, it essentially sort of killed off the market entirely. And this time around, there is some useful stuff going on in DeFi that we might want to retain a bit more of. So the big question with regulation is figuring out how to get this balance right between protecting investors from the sort of worst, dodgiest stuff, but also not strangling any of the exciting innovation that you might want.
5: How long do you think this winter is going to last?
1: Well, predicting the exact length of the crypto winter is probably dangerously close to investment advice, but still... The best guide we have is probably what happened last time around, which was in 2017. You had that big sort of hype and ascendancy cycle and then things crashed and they stayed crashed for at least a couple of years, uh, probably closer to three. So there are these big long lulls in hype and activity and coverage. You know, people don't write as many articles or, or record as many podcasts about crypto in those sort of low periods. And, you know, perhaps listeners can look forward to that uh, shutting out about crypto for, for a couple of years. Anyway, I think it is time for our stats of the week. Okay, I'll
5: swoop in here. I've been looking at childcare this week, and I came across a fun chart showing the maximum number of children per staff member um, in nurseries in various European countries. So, the UK has one of the tightest limits in, in Europe. So you can have at most three children per staff member. In Spain, you can have 13, which is many more. Uh, so I found that striking. I mean, I suspect they don't actually have 13 one-year-olds per adult.
8: Yeah, that seems like quite a lot of Probably too many. I don't want to make a judgment on Spanish public policy. I really don't want to turn this into that. But but thirteen's a lot of one-year-olds. It's a
5: lot of, it's a lot of nappies to be changing simultaneously. Yeah.
8: So my statistic this week is uh, minus 9.6%, uh, which is the change in the population of London's Kensington and Chelsea in the last 10 years. This is uh, data that's just come out from the... British census, uh, which I found absolutely astonishing because uh, Kensington and Chelsea house prices, let's say, are definitely not down by about 10% in the last 10 years.
1: Well, my stat of the week is 40 hours, which is the length of time that the first person to arrive in the Wimbledon queue for the first time since 2019, it, it's reopened. Uh, so they waited 40 hours for their ticket to Centre Court uh, on Monday to see Emma Raducanu and Andy Murray and all of that lot. And, you know, I guess if you did live in Kensington and Chelsea, you probably wouldn't have to join the Wimbledon queue. But I love the Wimbledon queue and it's a great time and I'm thrilled that it's returned. Our thanks this week to Clara Medali, Eswar Passad and Kim Grauer. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
8: Or write to us with your stats at podcasts at
1: Today's show was produced by Sam Westron. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. Our editor is Kim Gittleson. I'm
5: Samaya Keynes.
1: I'm Mike Bird. And I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist.